0: Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. The audio recording of this lecture, How to Convert the Pope, Successful and Failed Attempts to Bring the Messiah was taken from a Zoom lecture given this year in 2020 as part of the Limud Oz program.
1: When we try to understand any messianic movement, we need to understand the historical conditions in which that movement is embedded to understand why a window of opportunity was offered at that time and when these messianic ideas burst through, they give us a picture of the development of the Messianic idea itself. The Messianic idea, of course, is primarily evident in ancient Jewish history through the writings of the prophets, as found in Tanakh, as found in the Bible, who really developed the idea of the possibility that a restored Israel as housing the presence of the divine could lead to a transformed world that universally recognizes the presence of the divine and thus bring about an era that contains no war or bloodshed or conflict or disease or really much bad going on at all, no letters to the Australian Jewish news etc. That is the messianic period and the prophets of Israel projected this into the psyche of the Jewish people as an ultimate vessel of hope But as we shall see, it's a hope for a number of different things that themselves are a little bit in tension. We had in the first millennium of the common era, that's from around about zero to around about the year 1000, we had a number of major messianic contenders, but all of them seemed to be within the framework or the template that was laid down more or less at the end of the Bible because up until the 10th century, we still had the Institute of the Resh Galutov, the Exilach. There was a nominal representative of the Davidic line, and the Messianic restoration was seen in classic biblical, in a classic biblical picture. That is that the head of the exile, the so conditions would come about, historical conditions would come about, where the head of the exile would march the Jews back to the land of Israel, restore the temple, and so on, and create a new era of peace, harmony, and stability for the Jews in the land of Israel. And that that situation could really only come about when there was a fundamental shift in world events. We had some fundamental shifts in world events during the the millennium from zero to 1000. And we had some messianic candidates. But as I said, they all fit in with this classical model. It's really only from 1000 onwards that we see this idea that people are mystically, if you like, and there are aspects of mysticism in this talk. I've got to warn you, that, there are, that it is mystically possible through the effort of individuals to bring about the messianic shift, to bring about a world in which the idea of a messiah is possible and that the idea of a messiah is manifest. But what we see is we see two distinct trains in which that takes place, two distinct spheres, two ideas, really, of what it is that the Messiah is doing. And what I want to do just in this brief talk on this topic is to, because I think there's a benefit in understanding this, to understand subsequent Jewish history and many of its facets even today, is to look at these two paradigms of the messianic activity and to bring a couple of illustrations where we can see that pattern emerging in different ways and maybe even a third and fourth illustration which shows them combined. But the two ideas basically behind the messianic project are this. On the one hand, there comes about the idea that Because the world is tumultuous, well, not not the idea that the world, the world is, the observation that the world is tumultuous, then the circumstances can come about if we force them, whereby we go up as a nation and retake the land of Israel and create an independent Jewish state in the land of Israel. Whether the nations like it or not, we're going to give it a go. And if we're right, then God will back us. And if God will back us, nothing can stop us. And we will go to the land of Israel and by force recreate the conditions necessary for the fulfillment of biblical prophecies. And bear in mind, by the 11th century, the 12th century, people have been in exile for quite a while. They've had quite enough of it and they've had a taste of what it's like for Jews in the exile, if we look, I want to look, this this idea that we will go up militarily, even, but especially militarily, and conquer the land of Israel for ourselves, is what I am categorizing as what we might call the Yishmaelic model, the Yishmaelik model, because it is a picture that, Predominantly arises where Jews are living in Islamic countries. And Islam has a very, very long history of struggle with the Jewish people over the territory of the land of Israel. But Islam, very, very, in very, very small amount, almost negligible engagement with the Jews theologically. They have their own little segment of the Islamic library that will tell you that the Jews distorted the Torah and that they got it wrong. But their fight is not so much over the Torah. They acknowledge, even themselves, that the Jews are the people of the book, that they are a Mosaic tradition. They ignore Jesus, but they, the Torah that they have, is they, the story that they have is basically correct except for the fact that the Jews believe the covenant went through Isaac and not through Ishmael, but their struggle is over the land. Once Muhammad and once Islam comes along, there's no more back and forth here. The land of Israel and Jerusalem and the Laksa all belong to Darbal Islam. Darbal Islam, Darbal Islam. They all belong to the habitation of Islam. On the other hand, the other great, spiritual system that emerged from Judaism during the former period I was talking about, Christianity does not struggle so much with the Jews over the land of Israel. For most of the last two millennia, there hasn't been a point to that because we haven't been in power there. Their problem is with the Jews theologically. Their argument is over the Torah. So the first example I want to look at before we delve into Christianity, the first example I want to look at is the example of a very fascinating individual that I'm sure many of you would be aware of living in the 12th century. So he's living, we're not entirely sure of his dates, but he's living in around the 1150s, 1160s in a part of Iraq that is kind of more or less Kurdistan. And his name, he was born Menachem bin Shlomo, and that's very interesting itself because Menachem, right throughout this period, is a classic messianically loaded name. Wherever you see a messianic movement, you're going to see the name Menachem. And when people see the name Menachem in a big figure of Jewish history, there's more than likelihood they are talking about a messianic figure and no less than in our own generations we've seen that. But Menachem ben Shlomo changed his name in the course of his career to what we now know him by, and that is David al-Ruhi or David al Roy, as some people refer to it. It's, but the likelihood is, is that that's a transliteration of David al-Ruhi. David because of his messianic aspirations and al-Ruhi meaning that he was infused with the Spirit. <laughs> and the Spirit is very important if you're going to be a messianic figure. David al-Ruhi basically exists in the vacuum in the Islamic world that was created after the first couple of crusades and the Islamic world was in something of a turmoil as it has been at various stages in its history with no single power center. And David al-Ruhi basically gets up and exhorts the Jewish communities of Iraq to rise up and create a militia and march to Jerusalem and conquer the land of Israel and usher in the messianic era. Apparently, he didn't really go much further than uh, a few suburbs around him. It wasn't like this idea was catching on in Europe at the time. But David al had a very, very useful talent, a very useful career for the Messiah. This makes him interesting. Everything I'm talking about is just headlines but this makes him interesting on another level is that he was charismatic and he was a scholar. He wasn't just some bogan from the burbs. He was in fact a a very kind of the figure that you might imagine could be a messianic figure. And in addition, he was also a magician and being a magician is very, very useful if you are the Messiah, because means that you are assumed to have the power to do these things by magic. And in fact, David al Roy, we have various accounts, Benjamin of Tudela and a number of other characters, even some quoting in the name of Maimonides, uh, various historical remarks about David al Roy, who was, of course, a contemporary of Maimonides. But we have different accounts, and it's a little bit murky, but what we understand is that at some point, he was, in fact, arrested by the, by the Seljuk authorities, and he managed to escape. This, of course, added tremendous credibility to his his claims, and in fact, according to some accounts, he was even captured twice. He then announced that all the people that were ascribing to the Messianic movement, those who really believed that the era of the Messiah was being ushered in, that David al-Ruhi was actually going to take everyone, magically or otherwise, to the land of Israel, was to gather in a certain place on a certain evening, and the problem was that everyone did gather, but everyone except David al-Ruhi he didn't turn up and he was never again seen. This is kind of interesting because a lot of people were still running around afterwards or waiting for him to come back. Various people even turned up afterwards pretending to be giving instructions on his behalf and so on. It was very, very messy. But I talk about it. It's a fascinating period. We can't go into more detail right now. But it's the classic example how in this second millennium, in the period of the Rishonim, we suddenly get this political urge idea to conquer the land of israel and it is very very much in the Yishmaelic model that is the culture and the society that he was exposed to and that is how that messianic movement manifested i should point out really that this dual tension here within the messianic project is already really kind of a little bit resonant because coming out of the midrash of antiquity we actually have a picture of two different messiahs. This is a slightly different topic, but there are two different messiahs. There's a the messiah the son of Joseph, and then there's a the messiah the descendant of David. These two pictures are in order to reconcile various prophecies regarding the messiah and the identities of the messiah's ancestry and lineage. The tribe of Ephraim produces the messiah the son of Joseph, the tribe of Judah produces the Messiah, the son of David. And traditionally in Midrash, the Messiah, the son of Joseph, was the one who was going to fight physical battles. He was, in fact, according to a number of Midrashim, going to be killed. The Messiah, the son of David, was going to have the final spiritual, great spiritual battle that was going to usher in, the true messianic age, which is the universal recognition of God. Ironically, as we'll see over the course of the last thousand years, these two ideas became transposed so that the war took on theological terms and the Mashiach ben Yosef was seen as someone who would be ultimately defeating Christianity and King David coming at the end of days after the war against Christianity had been won would come and effect the final victory over Yishmael. These are very, very ancient prophecies in Jewish literature. But the idea of struggling with Christianity is based, of course, on the idea that the covenantal relationship with Abraham was made through Isaac and also through all of Abraham's descendants, including Yishmael. But Isaac himself has two sons. Isaac has Jacob, who takes the bulk of the spiritual line of the covenant, and also Esau. Esau is not Jacob's cousin or uncle. Esau is Jacob's brother. And Esau, of course, transmogrifies into Edom, because the Bible tells us that Esau becomes Edom. And then through much of Midrashic and Rabbinic literature in the ancient world, Edom, of course, becomes synonymous with Rome and the ethno-spiritual projection of Rome into the world, it would be hard to argue against, is Christianity. And for the last thousand years, the Jews have found themselves caught between these two competing spiritual systems.
0: You're listening to Collected Talks of David Solomon. If you enjoy these lectures, you can help us cover the cost of hosting, editing and producing these podcasts for as little as $3 a month. Visit davidsolomon.online to learn more.
1: If we look towards the end of the 13th century, and those of you who've been to my talks in the last few years will know that I've spoken in in some detail and at length about those particular times, and we're only just focusing a little bit, but hopefully some of that background information will make you realise some of the finer points of this. I'm going to talk about a figure that I'm sure all of you are familiar with, but I just want to, the point of this talk is I I want to posit this as a contrasting model. And that, of course, is the figure of Avraham Abu Lafia. Avraham Abu Lafia had the great merit to be born in the year 1240, which is the year 5000 in the Jewish calendar. And if you're born in Spain, in Saragossa, in the year 1240, uh, in the year 5000, and you are mystically inclined, you might think that you're a bit special. And he always thought he was rather special, Avraham Bulafia. At the age of 20, he set off on a great big journey to find the mystical river Sambation that can only be crossed on Shabbat. The mystical river Sambatyon is a very fast-flowing river. Boulders are jumping up and down, and it's very difficult to cross. But on Shabbat, the boulders come to rest, and you can walk over the boulders to the other side. So Avram Abulafia goes in search of this legendary river in in around 1260. Amazingly, he doesn't find it. What he does find, however, is a world in considerable turmoil and devastation He finds he can't go deep into the land of Israel because 1259, 1260, of course, we're in the height now of the Mongol invasions. Everyone in the Islamic and Christian worlds are freaking out about that. So he goes, he finds, he lives for a few years in in Italy and in Greece and in other places in the Mediterranean. He is very, very interested in the ideas behind what is happening spiritually in the world and he particularly takes note of the writings of Maimonides, who had died about 35 years before he was born, but whose influence and dominance is now paramount in the Jewish world. What's very important to realize is that Abu La'fia is living in a time of increasing, growing, and tremendous persecution of Jews on an intellectual and theological level. Even beyond the massacres and the blood libels, there is an absolute concerted project on behalf of Roman Christianity to convert the Jews intellectually. And this is also a time of the rise of high scholasticism. The philosophy of Aristotle is becoming pervasive. The rumbums project in philosophy was to synthesize that with Torah. But for the church, it was on absolute super alert against heresy. Being on absolute super alert against heresy, that made you start thinking, made the church start thinking about, well, what about the Jews? We have to tolerate them. We can't kill them exactly, but they must be wandering around with a whole lot of ideas that we find problematic. Not only that, but we're pretty sure, based on a few verses in the New Testament, that we're pretty sure that if we can manage to convert the Jews, then that itself, Will bring about the return of you know who and usher in the Messianic era. The agenda to convert the Jews was relentless in the Middle Ages, but particularly in the second half of the 13th century. And we know that it was precisely at that time that the most famous debate of the Middle Ages, there were many famous debates against the church in the Middle Ages, but the only, the written, they're not the only, there are three really famous ones and of those, the really most famous one is the one that we won because we won it through Nachmanides, polished off Pablo Christiani in three days. We know a lot of detail about that debate, there's a lot of history around that. But that was happening during this time that Abu Lafia is poring over the writings of Maimonides, trying to crack the code because of his belief that Maimonides was not simply a rationalist thinker, but he was also a great mystic kabbalist and that you could unlock the secrets of his philosophic text to discover that but at the same time abu La'fia is working on trying to perfect in technique something alluded to in maimonides writings about the concept of prophecy if we are going to see a restored israel and this was an acute time it's no coincidence that it is precisely that century, the 13th century, that culminates with the production of the Zohar, which is this great mystical poem of the new Kabbalah about and revelations about the role of the Jewish people in that struggle between Christianity and Islam, that it is no wonder that he then comes to a realization that we need to restore the Institute of Prophecy, and Maimonides has told us that prophecy is not just a case of being zapped by God, you can actually acquire prophecy by your own intellectual and spiritual achievement. And that's what he tried to do, you know, he's tuning into the act, divine active intellect as it's flowing down into the human mind to get the spillover of energy and put them into words and linguistic form. This is a, a huge project that's going to consume you for much of his life. But in 1270, he has a massive revelation. That revelation is basically that he has to go to Rome and convert the Pope. And Abulafia then devotes the rest of the next 10 years to that project. He doesn't obviously go immediately. He has to prepare himself. He has to wander around. He has to make his way to Rome. It wasn't that simple, but Abulafia made no secret of his mission. He was told in this mission, in this prophetic mission to go to Rome to convert the Pope to Judaism. Now the Pope at that time, by the time in the late 1270s, you know, we got um, kind of three types of Popes in Jewish history. We got Jew-friendly Popes, and we have what we call Power of Popes, and then we have what we call unpleasant popes. That means that they were pretty much highly anti-Semitic. The pope at the end of the 1270s is Nicholas III. Uh, he's not He's not a Jew-friendly pope and he's not parv. He's, uh, he's a major Jew hater and he promulgates various decrees, one of which was that Dominican priests are allowed whenever they want to march into a synagogue at any time, and to preach a conversionist sermon. So you can imagine you'd be sitting there in shul sometime, uh, you know, after Muftir, before Musaf, and suddenly a Dominican priest would march in, and everyone had to be quiet, and then he would talk to you in your shul on Shabbos morning about Christ. Now, I know that for some of you that may be shocking, but for others it would leave them with a very, very significant uh, bad taste. But it was an awful decree. So that's the Pope that we're dealing with. And as Lafia gets closer to Rome, he's telling people, I'm going to Rome to convert the Pope to Judaism. So naturally, word gets out about that. And by the time Lafia arrives in Rome, well, Nicholas III had been warned of this because word had got ahead of him. And he told his administration that when Lafia arrived, He was to be locked in a prison and they were to take a whole lot of wood and build a great big stake in the middle of the square. They were to stick him on it, put Abu Lafia on that stake and burn it. And so when Abu Lafia arrived, that's exactly what happened. He was taken on Erev Rosh Hashanah of the year 1280. He finally arrives in Rome and he is put in that prison and they build the pyre to burn him on it. But in the morning they let him go because the Pope has died overnight. This was, to Abulafia, no doubt, an astonishing sign, and he dined out on it for many years. Abulafia continued. We know of Abulafia's activities for the next 10 years or so. He kind of disappears after that, but he is working through some of the meditational and prophetic techniques for which he subsequently became very, very well known. But our focus, I wanted to look at, Abu Lafia 's trip to Rome, which has many, many details as well. He went with a mission because the Ramban, Nachmanides, who were just, as I said, just uh, been around a few years before, had looked and discussed the Pope in terms of Pharaoh and that what the Messiah would need to do would be to go to the Pope and demand, let my people go. But Abu Lafia took it to a new level. He took it to a level where the Spirit had told him that. The only answer to all of this was that the Pope needed to convert to Judaism because the Pope, who was the high priest of Edom, converted to to Judaism which recognized the oneness of the divine and the right of the Jewish people as the bearers of the covenant of the divine, then that would bring peace to the world and a great realization of God. It didn't work out for Abu Lafia, but he, as he told other people, that didn't work out. But it's not something that anybody should just try because it is dangerous. Abu Lafia got in and out because he was special, but without the right preparation, that would be dangerous for anyone to try. And in fact, we hear, even in the 15th century, figures like Joseph de la Reyna, Messianic figures, working with what I'm calling the Edomic model the Edomic model in contrast to the Ishmaelic model of the Messiah, that throughout the 15th century, figures that tried this came to great danger. We have quite a number of legends. The truth value of those legends is probably not as significant as the existence of the legends themselves, because what they're telling us is that the Jewish literature and Jewish thought of the Middle Ages from the 13th century right through to the late 15th, are telling us that this type of activity is not recommended, this theological struggle on a mystical level with Christianity. I mean, it's, in some ways, it's, it's getting increasingly difficult for us to posit ourselves in that world. We live in a world where for the last nearly 60 years, Christianity has, since the Vatican II in the early 60s, has come around to a number of positions that would have been positively enlightened uh, if they were placed in the Middle Ages. Things like, you know, oh, the Jews have a right to, to live without harassment and the fact that we are actually quite sorry for all of the horrendous things we've done in the name of our Saviour and that the Jews did not kill Christ or if they did kill Christ, it doesn't matter. And there's no such thing as any of the horrible things we've said about the Jews and they're actually our, not our enemies, they are our ancient brethren and we should have a dialogue with them. These are just mind-blowing statements when you look at the history of the church throughout the, most of the, throughout the Middle Ages. I want to just briefly talk about one other example, one or two other examples. I've got my eye on the time, so I know that I don't want it to get away from me. Having made this distinction, I now want to use that distinction between the Ishmaelic and the Edomic to understand a little bit about some subsequent Messianic figures because... As I said, this entire talk really is a footnote to a series I was preparing on the Messianic idea in Judaism, and I just want to test it out, really, to you. I haven't talked this through totally, but I just wanted to test it out to you to see whether the paradigm works, and I think it does, because obviously the next significant attempt to force the arrival of the Messiah, a significant attempt that we know of, and bear in mind, the title of this talk is Successful and Failed Attempts to Bring the Messiah. Many of these attempts appear to have failed. We still live, unfortunately, in a broken world, but, and we broken, but who's to say that some of these attempts were not actually successful in, in their own way? We're just waiting for their results. And one of those efforts is really something that people are aware of, but I want to put that into the context. Of, that I've explained. So I'm talking, I want to talk just a few minutes and I, I won't go over the whole thing because I've spoken about it elsewhere and others have spoken about it and there's plenty of literature on it, but I just want to talk uh, dive in once again to the incredible circumstances surrounding the Molcho-Ruveni messianic movement of the 1520s and the 1530s. Once we are in the first third of the, 16th century, we are in a very very different world from the one that Abu Lafia is in and the 16th century has just seen the full manifestation of that 13th century goal of a pure Christian Europe because they have just expelled all the Jews from Spain and Portugal at the end of the 15th century and as hundreds of thousands of Sephardic Jews are pouring out into other communities around the mediterranean changing jewish life forever in all communities various places authorities of places where jews are arriving are having to accommodate these jews arriving and that then in turn sets up even more regulations in in certain parts particularly in christian europe in the ottoman empire it's an entirely different story they're setting them up in various economic zones and so on but in the still, and particularly in the papal states. So uh, the closer you are to the Pope, the safer you could be, but the Christians realized this and there were strict limits. So they took Jews and they started putting them in ghettos, is where we're getting to. And it is from the Venice ghetto that we see the great events emerge with Molcho and Roveni. Molcho who of course was a court official for King John in Portugal, who was a converso, who converted to Judaism, and Roveni, this very strange charismatic figure who had come from somewhere deep in the east where he claimed he actually came from the other side of the mystical river, Sambation because he was part of the Lost Ten Tribes. These two together went on a wild tour of, a wild, I don't know, wild, but, but, but extensive tour of many communities in the Mediterranean throughout the second half of the 1520s, arousing this redemptive spirit, but ultimately made their way to Rome. Ruveni is a classic Ishmaelic figure. Ruveni's idea, ultimately, which Molcha also expressed to Clement VII, the Pope at the time, is that we should take the combined armies of Christian Europe and the 10 tribes living on the other side of the mystical river that can only be crossed on Shabbat, and we should have one last great big crusade Because, says Molcho, to Clement in 1530, because you know, Clement, that you need to have an independent Jewish state in the land of Israel, backed by Western Christianity, before the Messiah can come. And Clement fundamentally agreed with that position. That is a classic Ishmaelic proposition. But at the same time, many, many historical sources that we know about this period, and they're not just one, there are a number, talk about the relationship between Molcho and Clement VII, the Pope, on a deep theological level. Molcho was so protected by the Pope and was so close to the Pope that the Pope even saved his life on a couple of occasions due to the tremendous pressure that was being placed by the curia around the Pope, on that association and friendship with Molcho, Some wanted to rumor that Clement VII himself was actually toying with the idea of converting to Judaism. Whether or not he was, or maybe he even did, what we see in Molcho's idea, because when we go right through Molcho's writings, we talk about the struggle over the Torah with Edom. We talk about this idea that These struggles have cosmic implications because as Molchow alludes and as is later brought out by 18th century thinkers such as Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzatu explicitly is that no spiritual system in the world can exist, certainly not one that can exist for so long and that has had so much influence and has at times even been given control of the land of Israel, no system can exist unless it contains a kernel of spiritual truth. Malko thought that it was possible to salvage Edom by going into that realm and ultimately, like Abu Lafi wanted to do, convert its primary symbolic adherent. And the way to do that is to actually convince the pope of the possibility that he may in fact be the messiah. I know that this is very, very strange stuff and some people would want everybody involved in this story just to take medication and chill a bit, but the ideas that are emerging in the writings of Molcho, who himself, obviously a proto-masonic figure, what they show is a combination launching into the modern era that's going to set the tone for the redemptive project is a combination of the theological and the military. So I just want to illustrate just how effective this distinction is when we look at the careers and effects of, of course, the most famous of the messianic projects of the following century, which, of course, are the Sabbatean events. And Shabtai Tzvi is uh, <laughs> Shabbtai is a classic Ishmaelic, although although he's not he's in the post-Lurianic era. In other words, after Tzfat, Shabbtai Tzvi is no longer taking specific theological or military actions to make the messianic program happen. He's just assuming that the time has arrived and the time is right. So when he's going to go before the Sultan and take the crown of the Sultan's head and put it on his own in this great big symbolic moment, that's going to happen not because he has an army and not because he's fought any theological battle, but simply because this is the time that that event will happen. Shamta Tzvi is an embodiment of his own prophetic yearning but Nathan of Gaza is a far more Edomic figure. Nathan of Gaza is the one who after Shabt Hatzvi's apostasy to Islam Nathan of Gaza is the one who explains that theologically. It wasn't a problem for Shabt Hatzvi to have converted to Islam because that was part of the program you have to go into the khlipah, you have to go into the husk in order to redeem the spark that is going to bring about the messianic era. And that is what Shamtai Tzvi was doing. It becomes explained theologically. And in fact, we know, and we're not sure of the circumstances of it, but we do know that Shamtai Tzvi sent Nathan after the apostasy, that Nathan went to on a secret mission to Rome. We can only assume that Nathan's secret mission to Rome was in some way connected with the conversion of the Pope or a theological struggle with Edom. And that explains why in the aftermath, in the following century, a century after the Sabbatean events, you get a a kind of a quasi-Sabbatean-like figure such as Jacob Frank, who is standing up and saying, I am the manifestation of all previous messianic figures because that job has now been completed. And we can see these themes coming forward even into the 20th century. If modern 20th century Zionism is a redemptive messianic project, then the theological issues are finished. The theological issues are done. The conditions were created. The time is right. And now is the time for the Jewish people to be in charge of their own destiny, in the land of Israel and what emerges at the end of the 20th and the beginning of the 21st century through movements like Chabad and so on is an idea that we're not going to change Christianity in Islam we're going to create a new religion for the gentiles that is itself based on the Torah on the seven Noahide laws and so on this is not a program I'm advocating I'm just describing anthropologically the development of this messianic idea. But I can see already that I have spoken for nearly 45 minutes. I will get in trouble if I don't open up for questions. There is a lot more that I was going to discuss on this distinction and where it's probably going. Uh, And where it's going is the fact that you you realize that this struggle between Christianity and Islam, between Ishmael and Edom, has been going on for a long time and it's not going to bring the world to peace. The only way it's going to bring the world to peace is if both of those discourses recognize their own roots and, and create a synthesis of themselves through understanding their roots in Judaism. But that's not going to happen until the Jewish people themselves make a rediscovery of the spirit of their own roots and what their continuing purpose is in the world. So these are important topics and I really do appreciate the opportunity just to run them out by you because they really, they've helped me formulate it for the course that ultimately I look forward to giving. Alrighty, we have time for maybe like one or two questions. David has a question, so I'll unmute you, David. You could please ask that now. Thank you. I was asking whether what impact the, Crus- the Christian Crusades had on both your streams. Enormous. Enormous. I mean, one of, the, one of the things that's often not recognized about the Crusades, I mean, although um, obviously some historians do recognize it, but it's often forgotten, is the fact that while the Crusades were a struggle between Christianity and Islam over the land of Israel, exactly the same struggle was happening on the other side of the Mediterranean over Spain. In the first and second Reconquista, and the period of the Almohads in between. And the primary, not I mean, not the single primary, but one of the primary, of course, communities, perhaps the most impressive Jewish community in the world at the time was Spain. And that is why figures that were coming out of Spain, like Abulafia, and like Yehuda Halevi, like even the authors of the, the people that were revealing the Zohar, they had all lived through this incredible period where Spain was undergoing this great theological struggle. And that to some extent could explain why that Edomic model is one that comes primarily out of Spain and out of Europe. Whereas in the Crusades, there was no, in the Holy Land, there wasn't much of a theological struggle. Richard I and Saladin were not sitting down and talking about, you know, how many, uh, how many angels there are, how many gods there are, or whose Torah was correct. This was primarily a military struggle. In fact, it was solely a military struggle. And so the Ishmaelic model seems to emerge from that. The Crusades were definitely, definitely influential on both of the first two that I said, David al-Roi in the East and Abu Lafia in the West a huge background issue for them because the Crusades went for 200 years from the end of the 11th to the end of the 13th centuries. But it was also influential clearly, even over 300 years later, over two, two and a half centuries later with Molcho and Rouveni who used the Crusades as a template for what they felt had to happen. It was very, very much a Middle Ages idea that we can do this, but it's that Middle Ages idea that it's carried over into some elements of modern messianism in different ways, but the Crusades hugely influential. Hugely, this will be the last question. And Yitz, I'm going to unmute you as well so you can ask your question. Hi, how are you? I'm well, how are you? Yitz? Very good, thanks. I am. Um, I was just thinking about Shabbatites V, I know that it occurred in 1666. And what I'm trying to understand is why that year was a significant year for the Jews.
0: I understand why it was significant for Christians, because 666 is a big number for them. But
1: why did Jews think it was a big year for them? There could be many answers to that question. There were some mystical projections around about that time. The year 1648 was probably the most predominant year predicted for the redemption in that generation. 1648 was almost, was explicitly stated by thinkers such as Rabbi Naftali Bachrach in Emma Kamelech and so on, who were talking about that year, which is why that year, which is why it was so devastating that that year did not turn out to be redemption, but turned out to be the Tzmalitzki massacres of Tach. 1666 was also projected but the main reason for that, you'd have to go trawling through some very, very dense, heretic material. So you'd be, make sure you have your helmet on and you're going to have to look through the various writings leading up to those events and Nathan of Gaza and so on. And they had all their calculations. I mean, if you want, if you want to find calculations to justify any year, you can. As it happened, 1666, turned out to be a pretty darn interesting year everywhere. I mean, the Great Fire of London, and there were some very big world events, and, and in fact, that's part of the reason why people were swept up in the fervor of sometimes. Tzvi. It looked like the world might be doing interesting things. But there's nothing specific in the sources about 1666 in the way that that relates. I and mean, obviously also, sometimes, sometimes Jewish apocalypticism feeds off Christian apocalypticism. We've seen this also elsewhere. So if 666 was this great big number for the Christians, then chances are there's probably a few Amoratzim Jews running around going, oh, 666, that's probably big for us, big for you, big for us. So, you know, there, there could have been all that. It's an interesting question. Maybe if I look into it, I'll, I'll wish that I'd answer this question better, but that's just the thoughts off the top of my head.
0: Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon.